following podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. Good evening, everybody. I'm going to have you guys just take a moment, and I want you to think about someone or some ones who have hurt you, whether it be in little ways or big ways. I want you to really focus. You can go as far back as you'd like. Maybe somebody hurt you today, last week, last year, 10 years ago, 20, 30 years ago. I want you to really think about that moment, about those people, about probably stuff you try to avoid thinking about, but maybe do think about more than you want to think about. So I just want to give you a moment and really, some of you it might be easy, but yep, I already know those people. I've already got a list in my mind that's already running. Uh, I don't need the moment, but for some of you, you might need a little bit longer. So we're just going to have a moment of silence and I want you to really focus on those things that brought you pain, um, whether verbal things, physical things, whatever that hurt you. All right, so now while you're thinking about that, let's read something that'll bring conviction, (laughs) okay? Um, I'm gonna look at Matthew 18, and I'm not trying to set you up. I'm I'm really not. (laughs) So we're gonna talk tonight about something that Gosh, it's just powerful. Um, It brings a lot of power to people's lives. It's perhaps one of, if not the the central theme of of Scripture. So uh, I'm hoping, I'm really hoping, I'm praying. I've been praying over tonight. I've been praying over everybody that would come tonight. I'm just asking that tonight, for you, for me, for everybody in this room, we would experience something big through this okay all right so looking in Matthew 18 you guys probably already know where I'm going with this you probably already saw the little subheadings in there that these fancy little Bibles have and you're like oh okay here we go Matthew 18 21 through 35 hang in there with me these are a lot of verses okay and it's only the start don't be checking your watches I'm looking at you okay Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Right there, let's just pause. That, Peter thought he was was showing a lot of grace because rabbinical practice was like, you you should forgive a standard of three times before you boot him down the road. That was commonly taught in the synagogues at that period of time. So Peter's thinking, Seven times, I'm more than doubling it. I'm getting the gold star student. And then Jesus is like, no, no, you don't have the idea yet. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servant. And already, you just got to be thinking like, all right, I asked Jesus a question. Now I'm getting a story um, I must have messed up here. He's got to teach me. And that's exactly what he's going to do for us tonight is, is teach us a lesson about the power of forgiveness. When he began to settle one 
He, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So thinking it's, it's been estimated um, upwards of this could be anywhere from 12 million to a billion dollars in present day money. You're not paying it back, right? This is meant to make a statement of the fact that this person who is being brought is, is gonna be unable to pay this back. There is no way. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. Empty promise, right? Because he knew it was not going to be possible. That's the point Jesus is making here. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And serving him, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay, that, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, the same thing, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, he, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and their master, and reported to their master all that had taken place. When his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to everyone of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Was there any chance that this servant was ever going to pay his debt? No, this is an eternal sentence. And Jesus is making that point. You have an unforgivable debt. I extended mercy and grace to you. You did not extend that same grace and mercy to others. So this is where you're going forever. So when we think about that, when we think about Christ telling this story to Peter, who thought he was the gold star student, and he is bringing it, amplifying it way above and beyond what Peter had said. And he's like, listen, forgiveness is not a time-sensitive thing. Forgiveness is not a temporary thing. Forgiveness is not something that you can put a limit on. Because if you choose to not forgive, this is what's going to happen. The point of the fact is this servant who had his unpayable debt forgiven was unchanged by grace. And what the question I want to pose to you guys that I've been wrestling with for, for a while is, have you been changed by grace? And I don't mean the initial, thank you, Jesus, I accept you into my heart, I call myself a Christian, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to do these things, but have you really, who you are inside, the way you think, the way you behave, the way you speak, the way you look at others, the way you look at yourself, have you been changed by grace? Ephesians 4.32, we love to say this verse in our, uh, in our home. Do you want to sing it for everybody? <laughs> Should I sing it? No, I'm going to say the verse. So. 
<laughs> no, it's like, be kind to one another, loving and forgiving, sharing and caring is what we do. So we sing that, you know, when our kids are like ready to rip each other's heads off and they just roll their eyes at us, you know. But Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and here's the, the focus, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So tonight I want to focus on a story that illustrates this. All right, review time. What did we talk about last week? Jonathan, yes. We are talking about his son tonight. Anybody know who that is? Phoebosheth. I love saying that name. Everybody say Mephibosheth. Can't say it without smiling. It's awesome. All right, so we, we see Mephibosheth in... 2 Samuel 9, 6 through 8. He is the son of Jonathan, as I said. He had just a little context where, where we're at. He is going to be shown mercy by David, who is king at the time. So from where we're at last weekend, David has now become king. Um, Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. David is on the throne. And what is going to happen here is David is going to extend a seat at the table to a son of Jonathan, to Mephibosheth. And we're going to read that here real, real quick. So 2 Samuel 9. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? A dead dog such as I. So here, this... I'm not going to focus on this aspect of it. It's an amazing part of the story. You could talk a lot about the mercy that is being shown here. I want you guys, just for the sake of tonight, to understand that Mephibosheth is undeserving. And the king is showing him not just mercy and letting him live, not just giving him land, but it, he, he's giving him a seat at the table, at his table, at the royal courts, and if you remember, if you were here last week, we talked about that similar act that had been shown to David by Mephibosheth's dad, Jonathan, who had taken his robe off, who had taken his armor off, who had taken his sword off, and it granted royalty to, to David. And here David is doing a similar act to Jonathan's son. And this act right here, this moment, and the way that Mephibosheth viewed himself being crippled, being unable to walk, being unable to take care of himself, being in the, in the line of a, a dead line. Um, he had seen his brothers, he had seen his father, he had seen his grandfather die. For all he knew, his life was over. And here the king is saying, I'm going to restore you above and beyond, and I'm granting you a seat at my table. This mercy, this grace that David is showing him is going to change Mephibosheth's life. And I want to focus on that. I want to focus on Mephibosheth's heart and how that was changed from this encounter with grace. So let's jump over 
um, later in the story to 2 Samuel chapter 16. So Mephibosheth, not being able to take care of himself, had a caretaker, his name is Ziba, who was looking after him. And you guys might be familiar with, with the story that um, David had to leave, right, because his son rose up against him to try to take the throne. So David's going to leave, and now Mephibosheth is completely dependent upon somebody else, upon Ziba, to help him to leave as well, because it was expected that all of David's courts would go with him to, as a sign of loyalty and the fact that it's probably highly likely that if you stayed behind, you were going to be killed. So 2 Samuel 16, picking up in verse 1, When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred uh, bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. Now, if you guys are familiar with the story, you know that Ziba is a big fat liar because that is not at all what happened. Ziba is seizing an opportunity to manipulate a situation to bring harm and destruction upon his master Mephibosheth and to try to earn unwarranted favor with the king. Now put yourself in Mephibosheth's shoes. Right? You've been abandoned by the one that was supposed to take care of you, and now that one that's supposed to take care of you is lying about you, ruining your name, your image in front of the king, a, a lie that could very well cost you your life. And how would you respond if ever met face-to-face -face with Ziba again? Some of you might be thinking, I've got got a few words I'd probably say to him, might be balling up the fist, might be throwing down some, might be praying thunder and lightning to just be striking overhead and strike him down. Well, that's why Mephibosheth's story is so powerful. Let's go three chapters later. So to talk about what is going to happen in between, David's going to be victorious. He's going to get to come back home. And upon entry... The king is returning, right? The whole imagery behind that as well. The king is returning. And Mephibosheth and David are going to come face to face. And you might be thinking, like, this is not going to be good. David, as you guys might know, if you're familiar with David, he was a hothead, to say the least, right? He was pretty quick to strike a blow, right? To rain down the lightning and bring the sword. 
That's just the type of person that he was. He usually needed somebody to talk him off of a cliff, and most often it was a woman that would do that to, to help him see reason. All right, so picking up here in 2 Samuel 19, verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day the king came back in safety. Right there, just getting that imagery. You know that Mephibosheth didn't do that stuff because he was lazy. It was because he was in mourning, right? Those would be traditions of mourning over the situation that was at hand. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all. Since my lord the king has come home safely. Not a reaction you would expect to someone who has been wronged so terribly. In verse 27, let me go back to that in verse 27. It says here that he has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like an angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. He didn't seek retribution. He didn't seek vengeance. He put it all in the king's hands. He surrendered his fate to King David. And right there, we can just pause at that, that action and think for our own lives, how often do we want to take action, take things in our own hands, seek vengeance, seek retribution, seek to show that we are right, seek to prove somebody wrong, seek to get back at somebody, to seek to have somebody else experience the pain that they have caused us, when what we should be doing is saying, God, do what is good in your eyes. Not in my eyes, because our eyes are not good, right? But good, do good in what is in your eyes. Romans 12, 14 tells us to bless those who persecute us. Not be nonchalant with them, not be passive with them, but to bless them. So I'm going to ask you right now, those names that you had in your minds, how can you bless them? You're like, oh, don't be asking me that. How dare you? No, how can you? The Bible tells you to. I'm not telling you to. God tells you to bless those who persecute you. 
Do good to those who bring harm to you, who do evil to you. Heap goodness onto them. Matthew 5, 44 through 45 says to, from Jesus' mouth himself, love your enemies and pray for them. I got to tell you, when is the last time you have prayed for those names that are running through your mind? I don't pray for those who hurt me very often. I will be the first to admit it. I try not to rebel on, on pain that has been brought to me. I try, I try to be grace motivated. I really do. But the grace that I'm guessing most of us in this room have shown those who have hurt us is pretty weak compared to the grace that we have been shown. And here, Mephibosheth is showing us the vengeance is the Lord's, not mine. He will see to justice to be done on my account. The next verse in verse 28 said, For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I to cry to the king? What right do we have? to moan and whine and complain about the hurt that is caused to us. And it's real. But in those moments, can we just stop and think about the nails that me and you put in his wrists and feet and the crown of thorns we put on his head and the lashes that we put across his back? We can't even compare the pain that others have caused us to the pain that we cause him and still cause him by our indifference, by our lack of grace, by our lack of love, by our lack of mercy, by our lack of moving for the sake of the gospel. Psalm 103, verses 2 through 5 say, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems all your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Guys, if we're walking around angry and bitter and hurt, we are not living in the goodness of God. We need to be defined by this. The Christian is marked by a life of grace, always living through the lens of grace. And if we're not, we need to remind ourselves of the wretches we are in the sight of God without the cross. Because I love y'all, and I know you love me, but we're wicked compared to Christ, who is perfect. And we have no right to stand on a high horse and be unforgiving towards anyone. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, talks about how we were dead, spiritually dead, and we've been brought to life purely, purely by the, the, the grace of Christ. That is it. That is what separates us from non-believers is the fact that we've experienced the, Christ, or the grace of Christ. We've latched onto that, and that should be changing us and should make us that much more different from those who have not experienced grace. 
That is the one thing that should make us different than someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, that we are constantly walking in grace. You can't hurt me because I have experienced the grace of Jesus. You read the stories about the, the first century Christians all the way through. And I remember Dave told the story about the people that were, were, were captured and they were out on the ice and they were naked and they just started praising the Lord. You guys remember that story? Oh my gosh, how powerful was that? You could not hurt them because they had Jesus. And one of the guards was saved through that and died right alongside of them. But they walked right into glory. Verse 30. And Mephibosheth said to king, so after David offers this, he, it's not quite a good judgment uh, on David's part. He should have probably had more severe actions for Ziba. Again, that's my, my full nature, just saying, smite him, right? <laughs> but Mephibosheth's like, no, give it all to him. Give it all to the person who lied and deceived and ran my name through the mud. You don't need to give me anything, David, because my heart is satisfied that you have come home safely. I remember there's this documentary I showed in my, in my school, in my class, about um, the Montgomery bus boycotts. And Dr. King's home had just been bombed. He was giving one of his evening sermons and... and rallies for the movement. They had been uh, boycotting the buses for almost a year at that point. And um, they come in and tell him, like, come on, your, your home's been bombed. He, he rushes home and, and he goes through and just makes sure his kids and his wife are okay. And he comes back out and the group, the, the group had rallied there. They had pitchforks, they had guns, they had everything like, let's make them pay. And Dr. King raises his hand and says, peace, my family is okay. And he starts giving a message. He's like, our aim should never be to hum humiliate the white man, but to extend love and mercy and grace that we have been shown ourselves. And then the whole crowd starts singing Amazing Grace. That is how we should be. Someone could bomb your home and you're ready to sing Amazing Grace. You're ready to go bring them cookies. You're ready to bless them and love them even though they've been uh, hateful towards you because let's be honest, guys, the one thing that brought us to Christ is not that we've gotten what we deserve, but that we didn't get what we deserved. Amen. It's that love and that grace that is powerful in the gospel, and it is the good news. And right before I came up here, Danny was praying with me, and, and she's like, may the Lord anoint you to preach the good news. And what are we doing if we're not preaching the good news and living the good news and experiencing the good news of the grace of Christ in our lives? Yeah. Luke 12, 35 through 36 says that we should be waiting for the master to return. Our eyes should be so focused on him coming back, that all the stuff that's happening down here isn't affecting us because our eyes are set on him. The only justice that is going to be permanent is when he comes back and establishes his kingdom forever. 
That is what we're waiting for. That's what we're longing for. And at that moment, when we see Jesus, are we going to care about anything that was done to us? No. Give it all to somebody else. Just take me with you, Jesus. Hebrews 9.28 says, We eagerly await his return. Colossians 1. 3 through, or 1, or 3, 1 through 4. Let me read that for you guys. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I, I don't want to downplay things that have happened to you. I have caused people pain. I have caused Danny pain. I have caused others. I'm sure I've caused my mom plenty of pain. I have caused people pain. I'm aware of that. And a lot of people have caused me pain. But all of that needs to go to the cross. We need to take all of those people, all of the pain, all of the hurt, and take it to the cross and say, thank you, Jesus, for the grace you have shown me. And because of that, I am changed forever. And because of that, I cannot be hurt because of the grace that I am living in. Scientifically, they have proven. There are studies out. I looked at a few of them, and the consensus is among sociologists, psychologists, and medical doctors that there are benefits including improved mental health, reduced stress, improved relationships, better physical health, um, better clarity of mind, lower blood pressure, better sleep, and less overall anxiety if you walk in grace. And if you're experiencing any of those things, it, it is probably time to check yourself. That's right. <laughs> Time to check yourself. I think that sounds pretty good to walk free. Free of the pain, free of the weight, free of the hurt. Guys, that's what Christ has offered every single one of us. Freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. C.S. Lewis says, To be Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. One of the most powerful stories in the Bible, I think, that, that illustrates, in the Old Testament, I should say, that illustrates the grace of God is found in the story of Hosea. You guys know what I'm talking about? Hosea, prophet of God, is told by God to marry, not the love of his life, prostitute someone who is already a prostitute so you, you you're told to go marry somebody who you know is a, not living a good life and is probably not going to be faithful to you and if you're familiar with the story you know that she wasn't she continually went back in to prostitution I feel so bad for Hosea but the point is for us to look at it through the lens of so often the, these prophets were to illustrate God, right? And God's relationship with Israel. So here Hosea is put in as a real life 
illustration, a living parable, so that Hosea could be like, see what my wife is doing? That's what you all are doing to God. You unfaithful people. So I want you guys to picture whichever side you're on. Your spouse has gone into prostitution. You've brought her back home. And then she's left again, and she is being sold. Oftentimes, prostitutes would be like on a, um, on a block to be sold to the highest bidder. And Hosea walks in, and he says, I'll buy her. She's already his. She's already his wife. And God says, you will go, and you will buy her. And you, you just picture this. The shame that she probably feels up there on display for other men to buy. And her husband comes up and pays to take her home. And he tells her that I will be faithful to you. In the midst of her shame, in the midst of her brokenness, in the midst of her bondage, she is being purchased. Her freedom is being purchased by a loyal, faithful bridegroom. And that's Jesus. And we are Gomer. We are the wife that is unfaithful in prostitution. We have prostituted our lives. We have been unfaithful in heart, in mind, in speech, in action. And in the midst of our unfaithfulness, Jesus has approached and says, I will buy you with my blood at the greatest cost, and I will be faithful to you even when you are not. How dare we step off of that stage and have our shekels taken off our wrists and accept the price that bought our freedom and refuse to show forgiveness and grace to anyone else. We will never, ever have anything done to us as bad as we have done to him. Ever. I don't care what somebody does to you. It is not as bad as what we have done to Christ. And having that image in our minds, knowing that we, like Mephibosheth knew, I was but a, from a dead house, doomed, doomed to die, and you gave me a seat at your table. God has given us a seat at his table. Our goal should not be to see people rot in hell or punished, but to see them seated next to us. Think about all the stories of the people who survived the Holocaust and came and hugged and forgave the people that killed their families. I read story after story of, of people who had their kids killed by drunk drivers and they were able to look at the person on the stand and say, I forgive you. And beyond that say, I don't want them to serve jail time. I drop my case and they go free. Guys, we have got to be empowered by grace. That is what I want for my life. That is what I want, and I pray for everybody in here that you will walk out these doors empowered by grace, changed by grace, that you will pray for the people who hurt you, that you will bless the people that hurt you, that you will love the people that hurt you, and that your goal will to be to see them seated at the table next to you.
And I want to close with this verse, Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13. It says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I-